Good evening, everybody. Um, if you're the type that likes to follow along actual Bible, Jonah chapter 4, I'm going to get to that in just a second. Um, it's just been an honor to spend the day with you. Anytime I speak, I want a couple things to happen. I want Jesus to get bigger. I want the cross to work better. I want the resurrection to be central. And I want scriptures to get bigger in our minds, not smaller. We want to have more discussions about the things of God, not less. And so afterwards, um, we do have a table set up. I would ask you to come back and avail yourself to the USBs and audio and video on lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of topics. Um, the, if you were not here this morning, the reason we do that is because we give 100% of our profit from that away to the poor and the afflicted. We have three homes in China that look after children with mental disabilities, two in Hinyang, one in Changsha. We also have a rescue home in Cape Town that gets girls out of the sex industry, off drugs, high school educated, and job trained, so we can do our part to try to break the cycle of poverty in the flats, all right? The only thing I would ask um, is there's another part of the service starting roughly 7.30. I'm having a gut feeling it might be a little later than that, but we're, we're going to have an encounter moment uh, where we're going to go through some, some worship and some ministry in the spirit and things like that. So if you, want, if you don't want anything, God bless you. I'll see you next time. If you do want something, if you could do so in the first 10 minutes, that would be awesome, right? So the order would be buy first and chat second. That would be just, that would just be great. All right, so my job tonight is to open the Bible. So we want to ask a couple questions. One, what happened? And two, more importantly, what's happening in us right now because of what happened? So I'm going to read from the end of the book of Jonah in a second, but it's inappropriate to read from the end of a book without setting it up. So here is the entire book of Jonah in four minutes. You're going to have to pay very close attention, right? So there was this guy named Jonah. He was the son of Amittai. He was called by God to preach to Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. And these people were particularly brutal. Whatever you're thinking, it was worse than that. The Romans crucified people. So if you, cru if you cross them, they beat you half to death and then let you finish dying by nailing you to a tree. The Assyrians did not do that. The Assyrians filleted you. They, they tied you up in public and they skinned you alive. There was a, an Assyrian emperor named Tiglath-Pileser who had mastered the art of cutting somebody's face just at the right depth to order to peel their face off and leave them alive. As an example, this is what happens when you mess with us. I do not want to be gross in any way, but I do want to be accurate. So this is an artist's rendition of filleting. Um, this is uh, where they just there was somebody crossing the Assyrians. They tied them down in public, and they start with the legs because that won't kill you. So God says to Jonah, I want you to go preach to them. You can take that photo back to the blank slate now. So, so I want you to go preach to them. Jonah reasonably says, no, thank you. I'm partial to keeping my skin. So Jonah goes the entire opposite direction, not wanting to be skinned alive. And he gets on a boat. And then the story gets pretty confrontational because he happens to get on a boat with pagan sailors that turns out has a higher view of human life than God's prophet. So the storm comes up and Jonah says, just throw me overboard. And they're like, we're not going to throw you overboard. And he says, why not? And they said, because you're a person, bro. And we care about people more than prophets. So in this story, you have the pagan sailors who have a more godly outlook on how the world should work than God's prophet. It's very, very confronting. Finally, they end up throwing Jonah overboard. And of course, he's going to drown, except for the fact that there's this fish that happens to be there. And the fish swallows Jonah. When I was a kid, I was taught that the fish was God's judgment. It sounded something like this. You better do what God says or you might get swallowed, right? Which is the exact opposite 
opposite point of the story. The point of the story is that no matter how far outside of the will of God we go, God is still out in front of us reaching out with salvation. Why? Because when you're thrown into the open ocean and there just happens to be a fish there to keep you from drowning, that's not judgment. That's God's salvation, right? And actually in the story, Jonah calls the fish his salvation. And he's in the belly of the fish. And it just so happens that he prays 10 perfect prayers from the book of Psalms. Um, while he was down there, which, okay. And so then God tells the fish to throw up um, three days later, and that's a disaster because if the fish throws up um, into the ocean, he's going to drown anyway. But it just so happens that the fish throws up near to dry land, and it just so happens that the dry land is next to a road, and it just so happens that that road happens to go to, you guessed it, Nineveh. So Jonah ends up going to Nineveh, and he preaches the worst sermon you've ever imagined. It's, uh, it's eight words in English. It's only five words in Hebrew. He preaches a five-word sermon. It goes something like this. Forty days from now, you're going to be destroyed. See you later, right? Uh, no why, no how, no what do we do about it, no hope, no anything. It's frankly the worst sermon ever. The whole thing backfires, and it works. And it says everybody in Nineveh repented from the greatest to the least, and even the animals fasted, which is sort of strange. It even says twice that even God repented. In in other words, his sermon was so moving that God himself repented, So, which is sort of strange. Like, is God allowed to repent? Does God ever respond to his own altar calls? And if, is God capable of evil? And if God's not capable of evil, why is he repenting of evil? There's all kinds of weird things going on in the passage. And this is where Jonah tells on himself. This is where you figure out that Jonah wasn't scared of being filleted. He actually was scared it would work. Because in Jonah's mind, the Assyrians were wicked they were evil. These were the other people that God was against, that God would want to get them. And what he didn't want is for God to be nice. And so he tells God off. And he says, I knew it. I knew you were a compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiveness God, a God who repents from evil. I knew it. That's why I ran. I didn't run because I was scared. I ran because I was scared it would work. I want you to destroy the Ninevites. And so Jonah has to learn that God is not nearly as interested in getting his enemies as he is. And God is not nearly as interested in getting you as your enemies are. God loves people just because they're people. The whole book of Jonah in four minutes. Now, the thing ends up with this weird object lesson. Jonah is sitting out by himself hoping God destroys this group of people. And God chooses one last time to teach him an object lesson. It's a weird story about a plant. Now, if you're a linear learner instead of a narrative learner, you are probably lost right now. So I did this for you. Next slide. When we run from God, we run to the strangest places. Like we never, we never go against what God wants us to do and it ends up where we want or where we picture like when we non-consent to God's wisdom, if God consents to us in love and wisdom and we non-consent to that consenting love, we end up in weird places. As a matter of fact, the, the first century church defined the wrath of God as being handed over to the self-inflicted consequences of non-consent to consent. In other words, what looks like God being angry at you is probably you just destroying yourself. When we run from God, we run to the strangest places. We also learn in this story that God is generous with his grace. That no matter how far away from the thing Jonah gets, God is always out in front of him making a way to reconsent in love. Like, have you had enough of yourself yet, bro? Have you had enough? There's a better way? H have you had enough? Let let's say it this way. Next slide. What we also learn from this story is that God wants to get us back without ever paying us back. That God is not punitive. 
I love the way uh, the, the first century uh, church said it this way. They said the entire Bible can be read in the prodigal son story. That pick a passage from Judges or Kings or Isaiah or Exodus, or any, and, and you have a pattern of loving consent, rebellion against that consent, getting the consequences into the pig pen of the consequences of non-consent to consent, having enough of yourself and returning to God only to find that God just wants to get you back without ever making you pay him back. And that is beautiful. But what we also learn in this story is that great moves of God start with a genuine revelation of the love of God for us and others. So in your evening meetings, you've been in a series called Change, and I want to talk about one attitude that we need to adopt in order to address that. This is the account of the object lesson that God gives Jonah. It's a weird story about a fast-growing plant. Check this out. Next slide. So Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city, and there he made himself a shelter and sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. In other words, can't wait for God to destroy people I don't like. Then the Lord God provided a vine, and it grew up over Jonah and gave him shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And he was very happy about the vine. If you're a note taker, that's the key sentence. Jonah's really happy about the vine. Next slide. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, and it chewed the vine. Then the sun rose, and God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on his head, and he grew faint. He wanted to die. And he said, it'd be better for me to die than to live. So he's now suicidal, right? He's not exactly the most stable person. Next slide. Uh, but God said to Jonah, do you have any right to be angry about the vine? It's a rhetorical question. No, you don't. You didn't, you didn't have anything to do with it. It wasn't even here two days ago, right? You have no right to be angry about the vine. Have you ever had a conversation with someone and they didn't pick up the vibe, you know? J Jonah goes, I do. I'm angry enough to die, right? Again, unstable. Next slide. But the Lord said, well, you've been concerned about this vine. Though it did not, you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? That's the end of the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah ends with a question, which is a terrible way to end the book, unless it's a sermon. And sermons are meant to make us wrestle. Essentially, God is like, Jonah, I wish that you were one-tenth as upset when people are destroyed as you are when your plant is. I wish that you had one-tenth the enthusiasm of people dying or living as you do with your plant living or dying. And it is an incredible object lesson to make us wrestle with some things. Again, for the linear learners, here you go. Next slide. We can run from God, but we can't outrun him. That God is always out in front of us wanting to get us back without paying us back. But here's where I want to park for the rest of the night is this point right here. The confronting thing about this story is that we learn that it is possible to surrender to God's moral will for our personal lives and still miss God's redemptive plan for the whole world. That in this story, Jonah sort of acquiesces and consents to what God wants him to do with his personal life. But in the middle of that authentic consent to what God wants us to do with our personal lives and our personal relationship with Jesus, we miss the point of his compassion for people, particularly people we see as different than us. And that is confronting. Jonah totally surrendered his, God's moral will for him while totally missing the point of God's love for the Ninevites. And let's be fair to Jonah. Were the Ninevites evil people? 
Yes, they filleted people. They dismembered people. They put people's eyes out as an example. And in Jonah's world, those people are at, listen, if you've ever had the thought, gee, the world's getting worse, please reconsider that thought. Whatever your problem is with ScoMo, he ain't Nero, okay? And so there's a whole sort of, these people were lunatics. And it wasn't just a marginalized group of lunatics. It was people ruling the entire known world at the time. And in Jonah's world, those people were evil and God wants to destroy them. But what he finds is that God loves those people just because they're people. And that's really confronting. And here's the question I want to ask us. Because I'm making an assumption that you're all fully devoted followers of Jesus. The reason is, is the NRL finals on and you're sitting here listening to me. Okay? I'm making that assumption. Here's that assumption. Is that everyone in here has consented to God's loving consent to you and said, Lord Jesus, I trust that your version of my life story is better than the one I've been writing on my own. And I want to surrender my life to that. And I'm glad about that. But what we learn in this story is that it's possible to do that and still be completely disconnected from how God feels about people, particularly people we don't like. Particularly people from another political point of view. Sometimes people of different races or sometimes people of different sort of cultures. We, it's easy for us to surrender to God's moral will for us and disconnect that from people we deem who have bad ideas. What we find in this story is that is not the way. You also find this in Jesus' life. There, there's a story, let me, next slide. There's a story from Mark about this encounter with Jesus' disciples and a blind man. It says they came to Jericho and, and Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd who were leaving the city. I only want to make one point here that the only people in this story are followers of Jesus. There's no Roman pagans. There's no, the only people in this story are people who are following Jesus. And then it gets really confrontational. And a blind man named Bartimaeus, that's the son of Timaeus, was sitting on the roadside begging. And when he heard that, Jesus, uh, that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David. That's another message for another time. Have mercy on me. Now watch what the fully devoted, surrendered followers of Jesus do to the blind man. But many rebuked him. Hang on a second. Who's the only people there? Followers of Jesus. So here's what's happening. The followers of Jesus are rebuking the most vulnerable in their own pursuit of Jesus. And they failed to see the irony in that. What you have in this story is people who are fully surrendered to God's moral will for them, who've totally disconnected that surrender to God's love for people not like them. See, in, in their world, this guy's not just blind. He's blind for a reason. Now, we would never think this today. We're way, this is a primitive thought. But in Jesus' world, people thought it was possible that if someone was born blind, it's because somebody sinned and God was exacting his revenge. Remember they asked him, they said, who sinned that this guy was born blind? And Jesus is like, what year is it? What do, you, do we still think like this? Sometimes people are born blind. And, and listen, they, they, so it wasn't just that he was blind. It was he was an outcast and potentially judged by God because of something maybe his grandfather did. And so, so th this is a social statement as much as it is a physical one. It's, it's wait a minute, this guy's blind. And, and what happens is, is the followers of Jesus are like, Shut up, beggar. Don't 
don't you see? You're interrupting our following of Jesus. And they failed to see. These people were overlooking the beggar in their own pursuit of Jesus. They were overlooking the most vulnerable. This is why it is very important that followers of Jesus never in the name of freedom in Christ justify behaviors that overlook the most vulnerable. I can't believe some of the stuff I'm seeing on the internet. Followers of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, in the name of freedom, I belong to Jesus, not the government. What are you talking? Like, followers of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, justifying behaviors that clearly put the most vulnerable at more risk and fail to see the irony in that. That it's possible to surrender our life to Christ and still behave in such a way that disconnects us from Christ's love for the most vulnerable, the most hurting, the most poor, the most afflicted, and the most available to exact change in our world. And it is just off-putting. Now, to be fair, in this story, Jesus gently reminds them that he's about that guy. And it's sort of comical that he's like, what are you doing? Call him. This is what we're about. And the disciples quickly go, Oh, really? Great. Hey, blind man, it's your lucky day. He actually wants to speak to you. They turn pretty quickly. But for us, it forces us to wrestle because in the Jonah story and in the Jesus story, you find that there are people who are fully devoted followers of Jesus who have yet to connect their personal moral commitment with how Jesus feels about people, particularly people not like them. The most vulnerable, the other, the poor, the wicked, whatever the case may be. Which leads us to a few questions. Next slide. Are we overlooking the beggar in our own pursuit of Jesus? Are we overlooking the most vulnerable in our, in our own pursuit of Jesus? Are we, are we using our freedom in Christ, the mantra we're free in Christ? Yes, but Christ revealed freedom as best expressed and experienced and explored when submitted to the higher ethic of love, considering the other better than ourself, considering the most vulnerable, the most poor, the one with the least amount of resources. Anytime Jesus starts a parable about a rich man who overlooks poor people, I just would like to point out, it doesn't work well. You don't want to be the punchline in Jesus's parable, which leads me to a few questions. Are we pursuing God's will for us while ignoring his will for the rest of the world? Maybe pursuing Jesus and loving our world is the same thing. Just 10 seconds for the Bible nerds, okay? If you're a Bible nerd, I want you, you got 10 seconds here, right? And then we'll step out of Bible nerddom. Remember how Jesus said the fulfillment of Scripture is to love God and love your neighbor as yourself, right? Well, in Greek, that's something called first attributive position. That, that means in, when a conjunction is used, the first condition and the second condition are the same thing. And in Greek, Jesus said it this way, love God and love your neighbor as yourself in its first attributed position, which means loving God and loving them is the same thing. You can't be harsh with people and humble before God. That doesn't work. And there's a great book. I don't have time to get into it tonight. There's a great book. You've got to read it. The whole book is about this, this principle. It's one of the best books ever written on it. It's called First John. And First John, his whole point is what difference does it make if you have all your doctrines straight, if everything you know about God doesn't equate to us being lo more loving to the world around us? Which leads me back to Jonah. Next slide. How does the book of Jonah end? What is the first and only description of Jonah being happy? And what is he doing? Let's explore these three questions for a second. 
The only description of Jonah being happy is he was sitting underneath his plant wanting God to destroy people he didn't like. <laughs> Which is frankly strange, is it not? Think about the whole book of Jonah and how many times Jonah had the opportunity to be happy. And Jonah was called by God and he was so happy to be called by God. No. And Jonah disobeyed God and lived to tell about it. And he was very happy about that. No. And he got on a boat. And he got on a boat with, you know, sort of merchants who cared about people more than their own prophets. And that rescued him. And he was happy about that. No. And he ended up being thrown over sea anyway. And instead of drowning, there was this fish there to save his sorry rear end from drowning. And man, he was so happy about the fish. No. And God told the fish to throw up instead of leaving him in there. And, and I was so happy to be outside the belly of the fish because that was just disgusting. I was so happy about being thrown up. No. And when the fish threw up, he, had, he didn't throw up in the open sea. He threw up near dry land so that I didn't drown anyway. I was so happy that he threw up near dry land. That was brilliant. No. And I go to Nineveh and preach the worst sermon ever. And instead of being skinned alive in the open town center for Friday night entertainment, um, I, it worked. I was so happy to be a part of the first biggest revival maybe ever. I was so happy about that. No, 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 not happy. How is Jonah happy? He's sitting underneath a plant in something that gives him his own temporary pleasure, and he's loving it. What an odd sort of person. I love how the rabbis talk about Jonah. They say Jonah was put in the Bible to teach us what not to be. That there's nothing in Jonah that's exemplary at all. He does nothing but unconsent and rebel, and then at the end of the story, you don't know if he gets it or not. And he ends up underneath this plant. And this is, next slide, let's say it this way. This is what God says. God says, you care about a plant. I care about people. You're happy when your plant lives and you're angry when it dies. I'm happy when people live and angry when people die. Jonah, how you feel about your plant, that's how I feel about people. It's a great object lesson, which leads me to Australia. Australia is a country full of plants. I hear if you go to Nimbin, there's a lot of plants. <laughs> it's not really my world, but there we go. Australia is one of the top five greatest nations on earth. A nation of motor cars, paved roads, stores that prepackage food for us, clean water in our taps, machines that do washing, other machines that do drying, world-class healthcare right down the road, and it's largely free or at least affordable. No one in here is scared of going bankrupt if you get sick. Why? Because this is Australia, man. When I hear Australians complain about Australia, let me be blunt. Where are you going to go? <laughs> like, if you can't make it here, bro, where are you going to go? And Australia has a lot of plants. And here's the problem with plants. There's nothing wrong with them. You can't confront the sin of it. Who gave Jonah his plant? God did. The, the issue is not is it right or wrong. The issue with plants is that they're temporary. And plants are meant to be enjoyed unless they take precedence over people. And, and Australia has a lot of plants. And i got to be honest with you, I like them all. High-speed internet, love it, right? Netflix, love it. People are like, oh, Shane, Netflix has bad stuff on it. I agree, but you can choose not to click on it. Friday night entertainment in Assyria was the public filleting of the village betrayer. Netflix is better. <laughs> I love it. I have an app on my phone called Ko. 
K-A-Y-O. It's brilliant. You know what K-O? I can watch live American sport in Australia in full HD on my phone. Love it. Love it. Love it. I, I, I've always given place to the rural communities in Australia. I've been everywhere. So I was out preaching in Gainda. I know. Drive to hell, turn left. Gainda. I have a good relationship with the church out there. It's a great church, great community people. They love me. And then the next day I was preaching in Mergen, and then in Kingaroy, and then Chinchilla, and then, right? So, and, and so it was, I was like, man, it's a two-hour drive, but it's, a, it's okay. I have KO. And so I can hook the Bluetooth to the car, and there's a big game on that I was interested in. I can, this will make the drive go by quick. Here's the problem. Do, do you, between Gainda and, and Mergen um, is the main road. It's called the A3. Do you know how much of that road has any data signal at all? None. Absolutely zero. And I mean none. I, 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 don't, I don't know how many dead bodies there are out there. If I'd have broke dead, you'd just die. Right? And I was very angry about my plant. I couldn't get the internet to work. You ever had the Wi-Fi go out at your house? And then you quickly realize how much you depend on it for everything? Right? And then what do you do? You, you, you have nothing. You... Most of us don't know what to do. We unplug it, wait 10 seconds, plug it back in. Hopefully that works. But if it doesn't, what do you have to do? you got to call Telstra. Oh, no! Flipping Telstra. Hate Telstra, right? And think about the frustration that wells up inside of us when something like the Internet goes out or our data signal goes bad. Plants. I think what Jesus is calling us to is to have the grace to enjoy our plants, but realize that they're plants. People matter. Plants come. Plants go. People stay. And a lot of times distractions come around plants, like this sort of privilege being taken from us, or this kind of thing, like just endorse. Or here's a good plant, doctrines. Doctrines come, doctrines go, people stay. I mean, the only doctrines that have survived over time is Jesus is the Christ, he was crucified, the resurrection's true. Everything else has sort of been discussed and moved and rethought about. Have you ever seen a Christian be willing to divide relationship with another Christian over a disagreement about doctrine? Plant. Plants come, plants go, people stay. God bless people. Money comes, money goes, people stay. Position comes, position goes, people stay. And what this story is calling us to do is to go, wait a minute. Can I have the grace to enjoy my plant but realize that people matter more? And can I be one-tenth as irritated about people not getting it or people suffering as I do when my plants go out? Now, great sermons aren't meant to be agreed with nor disagreed with. They're meant to be wrestled with. So let's wrestle. You guys have been in a series on change, and I think this is one question we have to deal with. Next slide. Let's, let's say it this way. How do we actually think about our enemies? And I'm not talking about like a passe sort of, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm talking about, no, like the other. The people we think are evil. The Democrats. You realize in Alabama, God's a Republican and wants everybody to have big guns. 
Like most of the time when we say God, we're just talking about a giant projection of ourself, a giant projection of our preference. But God is not best spoke of as a projection. God is best spoke of as a projectile, one that cuts through and is holding all things together for the spirit of the risen Christ is filling everything in every way, which requires us to think about our enemies quite differently. It's very easy to scapegoat people we disagree with and just call them enemies of God. Like, you don't disagree with me, you disagree with God, right? It's like, wait a minute, as if God agrees with you. Jonah is having to learn this. How do we think about our enemies? Are we still us and them thinkers? Let's let's say it this way. Are we acting for temporary pursuit or for permanent progress? Do we live for the plant or do we live for people? Is there any place we've forgotten our fish? What happened in this story is a guy that was rescued from the open water and the belly of a fish wanted God to still destroy people. Like, that's totally not getting it. Like, all God wanted was for Jonah to be so inspired by his mercy that he was going to be nice to other people. But Jonah wanted mercy for himself and justice for everybody else. It doesn't work that way. You can't say, God, forgive me. God, forgive me. God, get them. God, get them. He doesn't, that, that doesn't work. And if we ever forget where we would be had God not touched our life, we run the risk of that. Let's say it this way. Next slide. Do we believe or do we actually care? Which are two different things. That Jesus isn't somebody to believe in. Jesus is somebody to fundamentally shape the way we see our whole thing, our whole world. The last question I want to leave us with is very simple. Plant or people? Plant or people? If you were here this morning, fences or wells? For tonight, plant or people? Two profound questions that I think for Kenmore Church going forward, we have to continue to wrestle with. Are we going to be fence builders or well diggers? Are we going to live our life for the plant or the people? The temporary or the permanent. So Lord, give us the grace to see things differently, the irresistible urge to respond to what we see. Just right there where you're seated, I want you to re-surrender, re-consent to God's loving consent. If you need words, you could say something like, Lord, I actually do trust that your way is the best way for my life. Your story is better than mine. And I, I consent, I surrender to that. But... The second prayer, I think, is equally important, which is, Lord, teach me to see the world how you saw the world, to see them as you see them. Give me the strength to live for, my, for the people instead of my plants. Lord, would you give us the grace to enjoy our plants without feeling condemned, but to never, ever let that take precedent over people? Amen. Would you look this way? Thanks so much for letting me be a part of your evening. I hope Jesus got bigger, the cross worked better, the resurrection is central, and scriptures got bigger, not smaller. Um, if you're staying for the encounter portion, I can't wait to have a moment of worship and a bit of a move of the spirit with you. Um, and, and if not, I'll see you next time. Thanks so much for letting me be a part of your day. Grace and peace.